0: It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome back to Preachers on Preaching. We begin our second season of 12 episodes with an interview with Ken Shigematsu. Ken is the preacher and pastor of 10th Church in Vancouver, Canada. 10th is a Missionary Alliance Christian congregation up there. So we're starting off the new season with a Canadian evangelical. If you have ever subscribed to the mainline Protestant prejudicial belief that evangelicals are somehow not as thoughtful as folks in the liberal mainline tradition, Ken is going to upend that assumption. The bit of it that I still held on to before I talked to him was certainly erased by the time we were done conversing. Ken tells a lot of good stories, and he has a remarkable way of preparing for the pulpit. So I encourage you to uh, dive right in as we begin our second season. If you've got a suggestion for a guest like Ken, he came to us via an email from a listener, please do email me at preachers at christiancentury.org. For now, we start with a bit of a sermon from Ken Shigematsu.
1: Now, our text begins with James boldly addressing rich people in the society, in the community. Uh, People that today we would describe as either managers or owners of businesses and companies. They are people who are not only rich, but are powerful and influential. And according to verse 5, they are living in luxury and they are eating well and apparently a lot. Now, there are a lot of people in our society, a lot of people in our community, frankly, who would love to be living the way these wealthy people are living. They have money, they have power, luxury, influence. They seem to be living the, quote, dream. But according to James... Things are not as great in their lives as they perceive. They are living in what we might describe as the inverted U. It seems like their life is going up and up because they have gold and silver and positions of power and influence over others. But instead of feeling grateful for these gifts that have come into their life and, and therefore becoming more generous and going up like this... They feel superior to other people, particularly to those that are working for them. And in their pride, they are abusing them. They're failing to pay them. And so, according to James, they're not really going up, 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 but they're going down, 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 down as the inverted U-curve demonstrates. Now, this inverted U doesn't just play out in our society or their society uh, back in the first century, but it also plays out in our society now. There's a guy named Paul Piff, a researcher who worked at the University of California at Berkeley. And he's done a series of studies, 50 actually, that demonstrate that the richer a person is, the less compassionate they are likely to be. So for example, in one of the studies that Piff Led, he arranged for someone to stand on the street side, on a curb, as cars passed by, and the researchers were observing what drivers were stopping to let the pedestrian pass by. And the researchers discovered, led by Paul Piff at Berkeley, that the more expensive car the driver was driving, the less likely they were to stop for the pedestrian. I'm just reporting this, okay? Just some... <laughs> so we might think, well, hey, the nicer car the person had, they're probably more grateful. They feel like life has been good to them. They want to give back. Uh-uh. That wasn't true as born in the study. So who were the worst drivers? Who were the drivers least likely to stop for a pedestrian? BMW drivers. Again, I'm just reporting here. So, second worst drivers, Mercedes drivers. So, if you're about to cross the street, you see a Mercedes, think twice before you step out there. Okay, <laughs> All right? You can take notes on that. Third worst driver, drivers of Priuses. That was a big surprise to the researchers, but Piff and his colleagues theorized that the reason that Prius drivers don't tend to stop for pedestrians is because they are super concerned about their gas mileage. (laughs) They're thinking if I gotta slow down and stop, it's gonna generate, you know, more energy, gonna be you know, wasting more gas. I wanna shrink my carbon footprint, so even if I have to kill you, I'm gonna get (laughs) I'm gonna get my gas mileage. the inverted U-curve at work today. And so if you are rich in some way, and most of us here are in some way, whether financially or in education or in talent or in influence, don't let your wealth, financial or otherwise, give you a sense of entitlement. Don't let it cause you to think that you are somehow better than other people. Don't let it breed pride in you. But instead, remember, That God has gifted you with good things so that you can be a gift to others. You are blessed to be a blessing to whom much is given, to whom much has been given, Jesus said, much also will be required.
0: Well, Ken, welcome to Preachers on Preaching. I've been looking forward to this conversation and I'm very glad that we're able to connect.
1: Yeah, thanks, Matt. Me too. Good to be here.
0: Good, good. So Ken, you serve a church in Vancouver. One of the things I was curious about is what you see as the distinctions between the church in Canada and the church in the U.S.
1: A lot of people describe the church in, in Vancouver as being similar to the church in Europe, that it's uh, very much a post-Christian place, so people aren't as open to God or, or, or to Jesus. Uh, so the, the soil here is described uh, as being harder and more stony.
0: So then in your own ministry at Tenth Church, are you reaching out to folks who don't know the story, who are new to Christianity, or is it the minority of folks in Vancouver who are already practicing Christians that are that's your mission field?
1: Yeah, our, our vision at Tenth is to be the kind of place where uh, people who don't know Christ, people who might be on the borderlands of faith, uh, can be welcomed, can explore, ask hard questions, and so in that sense, we're we're somewhat distinct. We're we're really trying to reach the the secular person or the the spiritual person who wouldn't otherwise have a connection to Christ.
0: Do you see a distinction between American evangelicalism and and the
1: Canadian variant? Yes. Uh, American evangelicals at least as uh, they're perceived here uh, tend to be seen as republican uh, being pro gun um, anti abortion uh, lower taxes smaller government uh, whereas whereas here the evangelical church isn't as closely aligned to a particular p- political persuasion
0: so does it track is is the assumption then that the Canadian evangelical church is going to be to the left of the American one is maybe even that a faulty assumption that, it, that it's not tracking along those kind of, that, that American political paradigm?
1: So there are some churches that are definitely following conservative evangelical churches in the United States, but others aren't. So I think that you can make the general assumption that most Canadian churches would be left of U.S. evangelical churches or more to the theological center. Were you raised as a kid in the tradition that you're in now? No, I was born in, in Tokyo, Japan. And when I was two, our family moved briefly to New York City, then to England, and then moved here when I was eight. And uh, I actually grew up attending a mainline Presbyterian church. So my, my roots are are mainline. Uh, but now- How did that shift happen for you? Well, when i was a teenager i was getting into all kinds of trouble we were living in a in a slightly uh rougher suburb and so for fun and to gain acceptance among my more popular peers i got involved in things like shoplifting uh joyriding and in, in, uh, temporarily uh, borrowed cars from from the gas station i had a buddy working at the gas station i was getting involved in some small-time drug dealing getting into fights at school and my dad, who was this very conservative Asian Japanese man, was concerned about me. And so he took me on a field trip to the local state penitentiary and later simply said, "Son, I just want you to see your future home. Uh, free room and board courtesy of my tax dollars." And it didn't really phase me. He was trying to scare me straight. It didn't work dad, didn't work. My dad and my dad, who had been raised a a Buddhist, had recently become a follower of Christ. And so he took me to a Christian youth conference here in Vancouver. And uh, for the first time, I heard the message that Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we could have a new beginning with God. I didn't understand much about the Bible, but I sensed that I needed a new direction in my life. And so when the speaker gave us an opportunity to pray and offer our lives to God, I thought this is too good of an opportunity to to miss. And so I, I gave my life to God, and that was a kind of turning point for me.
0: Oh, that's remarkable. So you were in the church already, but you had this experience, this conversion experience, a uh, sort of an altar call experience almost right? Mm-hmm. Wow. was it did your life turn around right then and there, or was there a more gradual letting go of of those prior behaviors?
1: Yeah, it was a kind of gradual letting go. So I was part of the the popular but bad boy crowd at, at my high school. And so I, I sensed that God had come into my life, that he didn't want me getting drunk or high. But I would still go to parties and drink a little bit and um, do some drugs but not inhale. Um, I, was, I was very uh, conscious of my relative social status. But about a year later, I, I went to a Christian summer camp, and uh, the, the camp counselor that was in charge of youth uh, took us water skiing, we played basketball together, a really cool, loving kind of guy, and um, at the end of that week, he simply um, described that Jesus didn't come so that our lives would be boring, so that we would miss out, but from John 10.10, 10, explained that Christ came so that we might have life to the full, um, to, to the very maximum, and and so I saw the joy and the the peace that emanated from this counselor's life. His his nickname was Bam Bam uh, from the Flintstones. And I thought, I need to give this a try. And so while I had, in a sense, experienced a kind of conversion experience uh, about a year before, it was at that camp that I really gave my life over to God, got involved in a local church, a Christian and Missionary Alliance church, and and my life began to to change pretty significantly from that moment forward.
0: That's great. So you had modeled for you as a teenager this this alternate way of being. Do you think that that's given you an appreciation for the sort of upside-down radical inversion that Christ calls for, that Christianity asks us to, to enter?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it also makes me want to create the kind of community where uh, troubled youth or or adults that... Are finding that they're succeeding in some way, but, but empty, uh, I, I have a, a strong uh, desire, a passion to create a, a kind of place, as I was saying earlier, where, where people who don't really know Christ uh, can come and find him and, and to experience the, the, the life change that only God can give.
0: One of the things I was thinking about when I listened to the, to the U curve sermon and I encourage, um, our listeners to, to check that one out. You can visit Ken sermons at 10th.ca, but Ken, one of the things that I was wondering about is you say in that sermon that suffering can lead one to either be better or bitter, um, and one of the things I've experienced myself and seen is the third option, and not a desirable third option, but a third option that 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 goes into a sort of theological sadism, a, a sort of superiority, where one defines himself or herself by our wounds, and and then has a, a sort of nurtures them and has a pride about them. I was thinking about. My own adolescence and my father died when I was thirteen and my mother remarried a, a wonderful man whose his wife had died. So we had all these step siblings, all of us had gone through this traumatic loss or different traumatic losses. And we one of the ways we bonded, it was a very adolescent thing, but one of the ways we bonded was over against the family or the kids we knew who had not suffered in that way, mm-hmm. and we, you know, we understood ourselves as distinct, and we would sort of scoff. We we called it uh, perfect family disease, you know. Mm-hmm. Family, and and I look back on that, and that was a that was an adolescent reaction I had, but I've seen that in adults where adult Christians where we sort of can put ourselves on a hierarchy of woundedness mm-hmm. according to the degree that we've suffered. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Hmm? Yeah, and I think that can be a a problem as well, where where a a person defines themselves by uh, how much suffering they've gone through. I mean, that can be um, as 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 problematic and as spiritually stunting as defining oneself by uh, our successes and our achievements. And when we meet Christ, ideally we acknowledge our wounds, but we also become people of, of incredible hope and uh, belief in redemption and that um, while we might not have chosen the suffering, while God might not have chosen it for us and, and likely didn't will it for us in the sense of choosing it for us, that, that somehow nothing is wasted and that through the suffering we become humbler, more beautiful, uh, more hopeful people. When you share that kind of message with your congregation,
0: do you see in them, in those who are in the midst of trial, when they hear those words, like, how do they land? Can you see from the pulpit people being affected?
1: Yeah, I I sense that when you speak about suffering and loss, it touches almost everyone. And so um, we, we have a unique mix here at our church. We've got folks that are homeless, but we also have CEOs, we have surgeons, we have leading professors. And so even if you are successful from society's perspective, chances are you have suffered or you're connected to someone who is. And so I, I find that the, the kind of um, sermon that addresses suffering and, and how we can see it and experience it redemptively strikes a chord with, with almost everyone.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about the context in which you're preaching? So you talked about the diversity of your congregation. I read that you your church has five different sites, and that yep. you travel on a Sunday
1: and preach yep. at all
0: five, is that right?
1: Yeah, we have three different physical locations, four okay. venues, and so typically, yes, uh, I will speak at our... Uh, Mount Pleasant location at 9:15 a.m. It's in the center of the city in the geographic center. and then I finish preaching. I, I need to land it within about 30, 35 minutes. I'm driven over to our location on the western part of the city in Kitsilano. Uh, I arrive just as the offertory is being sung. and I, I preach there for 30 to 35 minutes, and then I'm driven back to the Mount Pleasant location. And then I preach. I've got a little bit more leeway because there's no service right after. And then we've got a five o'clock service on the eastern part of our city. And then uh, I leave there and then come back to the central location and uh, preach at a six thirty p.m. service. So five, I, I say. If I'm healthy, I think I can do six, uh, but I think six would be my max. And if I'm if I'm under the weather with a cold, then it's just kind of slogging it out with five.
0: You're like an old-fashioned circuit rider, but you're cramming the whole month into one Sunday. Um, When you preach to then those different congregations or different faces of one congregation, one of the things I'm fascinated by in preaching is the way that the same message is heard differently, met differently, becomes something different in a different context. What's that like for you on a, on a given Sunday? Are you getting the same reaction from these different bodies, or or do things go differently?
1: Yeah, each sermon is, is slightly different, though the content is, is basically the same. I'm a fairly spontaneous preacher. I, I do prepare uh, quite thoroughly, but when I'm um, at the locations, I don't use any notes other than uh, notes for specific quotes or statistics, and I'm looking out in the audience, and I will sometimes refer to a person's story, I might bring them in, and so each each message has a, a unique flavor that, that uh, conforms to the community. And the demographics are slightly different for each of the uh, services as well. Some Uh, services have a higher percentage of couples and uh, families and others uh, tend to be populated more by um, single young adults. And so depending on the service, I'll I'll make some some adjustments to the sermon.
0: So you're tailoring the content on the fly? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Did you learn how to do that in seminary or did that come to you
1: via practice? A little bit of both. So uh, I studied under a preaching professor named Haddon Robinson, and he would make us manuscript our, our sermons Uh, so that we had clarity of thought. So we had to write out the sermon word for word. But when we were actually preaching in the preaching lab, uh, we weren't allowed to use any notes whatsoever. And Robinson's idea was if it's not clear enough in your mind to be able to preach it without notes after reviewing the manuscript, say, four or five times, then it's a little too complicated to begin with. And if you can't easily hold it in your mind, you can't expect your listeners to hold it in their minds either. And so uh, he influenced me, and I'm pretty much a noteless preacher, even though I manuscript uh, in terms of the prep.
0: So you get the the idea out via the written word, Mm -hmm. but then you hold it in your head and in your heart and are able to... Do the other preachers on your staff all follow that same method?
1: I encourage them to go without notes, but they typically have their manuscript or their their outline on the podium, and I'm fine with that as long as they're not too tied to it. Uh, some say that I just get too nervous if I don't have my notes, and so it gives me a feeling of security to have them just in case I get lost. Uh, and so I, that's totally fine.
0: That's, uh, that's how I am. I need my security blanket in the <laughs>
1: pulpit. Um,
0: you have a, I I read an article that you wrote, uh, in preaching today about preparation for a sermon and the routines and, and even disciplines that you follow in order to, to get yourself ready. Can you talk a little bit about the, the integration of meditation and exercise and things that one might not think of as sermon prep that you practice?
1: Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um. Well, let me give you a little bit of uh, the backstory. As a new pastor, I try to do all of my sermon prep in a single day on, on Thursday. So I would get up early. I, I would be reading the critical commentaries, the communicator's uh, commentaries, uh, doing the outline uh, in the morning, uh, doing the manuscript in the afternoon, doing the study guide at night. And then when we added a second service and I was preaching a different sermon, for the evening service and I was trying to prepare two messages in a day. It just felt really overwhelming. It was the, the worst day of the week for me. And then I happened to be back at my uh, seminary just north of Boston. And I, I walked into my professor's office, my professor of preaching, Haddon Robinson's office. And I said, Haddon, what are you learning about preaching these days? And he said, I have recently learned that creativity occurs over a 10-day cycle. And so if you want to prepare your your best sermons, you need to start at least 10 days in advance so that you hit your creative peak at some point in this 10-day cycle. And so instead of preparing the sermon the Thursday before, I started preparing it two Thursdays before. Uh, I wasn't putting any more time into it. Uh, I was on an every-other-day rhythm to read, to outline. Um, But it felt much more relaxing, much more prayerful. And then um, I was having some problems with my eyes, and I was about to get some eye surgery. And so I, I found that um, I had a, a tough time looking at a computer screen and typing. And so I began to uh, dictate my uh, first drafts, and a volunteer typed up the draft. And I found that I had a more natural cadence when I was actually orally dictating the message into a recording device and typing it out. And then, I can't remember how I I discovered this, but I found that uh, maybe it's because I'm restless by nature that I I was more creative if I was doing my dictation and even my reading while walking. And and so I I began a practice of of walking and reading, walking and outlining, walking and dictating my sermon. I know it sounds a little strange, but I later learned that that a lot of poets and uh, great writers, I certainly don't put myself in the category of poet or great writer, uh, had a habit of uh, walking and uh, that it that it would stimulate both the left and right side of their brain. And so uh, they, they found they were more creative, and I certainly have found that for me as well. Um, so rather
0: than just taking a walk and going wool gathering or calming your spirit, you'll be like – I don't mean to say those things aren't a part of being productive, but you'll be productive in terms of speaking into a recording device while you're out for your walk.
1: Yes, exactly. And I find that um, that for whatever reason, uh, I, I tend to be more focused while I'm doing just a little bit of physical exercise. So, for example, uh, John Cassian, the uh, church father back in the, um, in, in the 400s, uh, would say to his monks, if you want to be able to focus in prayer and meditation, uh, it's, it's helpful to do some kind of physical activity like weaving a basket, because if you're just sitting in silence, all of these other thoughts will come into your mind. And some people find that if they need to think something through, that if they're doing a simple physical activity like walking or maybe driving on a long stretch of road without much traffic, they're able to focus more on an idea. And I find that, if I'm doing something physical uh, that, that's simple like walking, I'm able to focus a little bit better and, and I'm more um, a, a attentive to the voice of the Spirit as well.
0: One of the things I think is great about your practice is we can, preachers can, we're all busy, right? I mean, it's time consuming mm-hmm. to write a sermon. Any preacher that's, ser- most preachers are serving local parishes. That's obviously time consuming. Many of us have families that we're trying to balance our commitments to the church and 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 our you know commitments to our families so exercise can really get written off as you know, just we don't prioritize it because it we understand it to be taking away from those other more pressing priorities what i hear you saying is with some spiritual intentionality exercise can be properly understood as an integral part of our call to the pulpit
1: yeah, absolutely. And I find, at least for me, if I exercise, I'm less stressed out. I'm a better husband, better father. I think I'm a better pastor. I, I enjoy it. So hopefully it's not just rationalization, but I, I feel that it certainly gives back to me more than I put into it. And my wife, who uh, worked in publishing in Japan, she was um, an editor at Newsweek Japan. When I was writing my book, God in My Everything, she mentioned that uh, if you are tight while you're writing, it's going to come across in the writing uh, with the reader. And so she said, when you take time to write, try to relax, try to enjoy the process. Don't be too much of a perfectionist. And when people eventually read it, they'll, they'll enjoy it more. She said, they'll sense if you're nervous when you're writing, when they read it. So, and I think the same is true with preaching.
0: Good. I'm going to let your words echo in my ear the next time I, I skip out of my office to play a basketball <laughs> game or something. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about your persona in the pulpit, Ken. Just Talking to you now and having listened to a few of your sermons, there doesn't seem to be a massive uh, difference between who you are conversationally and who you are homiletically uh, in terms of style. Um, you have, from listening, a very kind of comforting, pleasant, open style in the pulpit. Is that something that you worked toward, or is it just you open yourself up and that's what's there?
1: Yeah, well, a couple of things. Uh, I, uh, my brother is, is an actor and a, and a playwright, and um, I once asked him about Jack Nicholson, uh, and I said, Jack Nicholson seems to play the same role in every movie, you know, kind of a, a slightly arrogant womanizer, and I sense he's that way in real life. I don't know Jack myself, and my brother said, it's actually not easy to play yourself. Um, you know, in a movie, uh, to, to just be natural. And and I think that when I first started out preaching, I was more wooden and more self-conscious. But with, with time, I think that I started feeling more comfortable in my own skin. I can learn a ton from other preachers, but I, I tend to draw my inspiration from people that are dead, like St. Benedict of, you know, the 5th century or Ignatius of Loyola, um, Saint John of the Cross, and so I think that I'm less tempted uh, to mimic other preachers. And um, people often say when they hear me preach, I just sound like a, a normal uh, human being. That it's very conversational, and I think in a place like Vancouver that that values authenticity, um, that 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 seems to work well.
0: In your preaching and, and in this conversation, you've mentioned sinfulness and sin a couple of times, and and obviously one of the the distinctions between the mainline and the evangelical world are is the a greater comfort, I think, with language around sinfulness in in evangelicalism than in the kind of mainline church that I serve. Um, when you when I listen to your sermons, when you talk about sin, it one of the things I took away was, I think. We're reluctant. I'm reluctant to talk about sinfulness sometimes because of the unfortunate images of of God as cruel judge. And so we're all sinners. If we start harping on our sinfulness, we, we invite this frightening dimension of God into the mix, and that might wind up terrifying people. So we my tradition tend to stay away from it altogether. One of the things I really took away from your sermons was this notion that uh, this idea I got from Stanley Harawas, but that our sins are their own punishments. The story mm-hmm. you told earlier about being arrested as a um, as a kid for for shoplifting sounds like your dad punished you too, but you suffered your own sinfulness, right? And it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily God punishing you but just the repercussions of the action that got you Mm -hmm. does that is that how you understand am I hearing you properly is that how you understand the way we suffer our sins
1: yeah one of my favorite images uh, of sin comes from I believe it's Dorothy Sayers where uh, she says that there are two kinds of laws there's the law of the stop sign uh, and there's the law of the fire and uh, if you're you know, driving up to an intersection and you don't stop at the stop sign. You sort of roll through it. It's four in the morning. No one's around. Uh, It's inconsequential that you broke the the law of the stop sign if there are no police around. But uh, she says the law of the fire is a different kind of law. And if you say, I'm going to break the law of the fire and then stick your hand in the fire, you'll discover that that law is very different, that that, um, bound up in the very nature of fire is the penalty for breaking it. And so, yeah, I completely see sin that way, and I I, I believe that we can name sin as preachers, um, and, and do it not out of anger or out of condescension, but out of deep compassion and and love, knowing that that when people sin, when when we sin, that that we diminish ourselves, that 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 uh, we cloud our relationship with God ourselves and other people. That's a fabulous distinction. So, rather than
0: Automatically thinking, if we speak of sin, that we're being that we're condemning our people. Mm-hmm. We can speak of sin in a compassionate way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I think that's something. That's a lesson that the that that I can learn. That that I think a lot of preachers who are in my tradition and in traditions similar can and ought to learn. I wanted to ask you, Ken, in in the sermons that I've listened to, there is a uh, you hew pretty closely to the scriptural narrative, to to the passage that you're preaching on, even in a, in a sort of verse-by-verse verse exegesis at times. Do you ever feel, well, do you ever feel limited by how
1: text-based our religion is? Yeah, at least among evangelicals, we uh, tend in some ways to be, uh, be a little too detail-oriented with uh, the grammar and the meaning of words. Obviously, that kind of exegesis is really important, but when you look at people like Peter preaching in the book of Acts and, you know, citing passages from the prophets, at least from an evangelical grid, it seems like Peter is playing kind of fast and loose with, you know, the, quote, author's or the prophet's original intention insofar as we can discern it, and I think sometimes... the the Holy Spirit will lead us to apply a passage in a way that was slightly different from what the writer originally intended. Mm. And and so, for example, this isn't coming from a sermon. Um, There was a person in our faith community who uh, struggled with mental illness. Uh, This person had... um, been out of work for, I think, 15 years, was on 30 different medications a day, uh, was really battling depression, came to know Jesus. And uh, he said that he, he was reading uh, his Bible um, in, in the book of Galatians, where, where Paul says, um, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And, and this person said, I, I feel that that God wants to heal me of my physical uh, diseases um, and my mental illness. And in my mind, I thought, that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about how we're free from the Torah and the, and the law. I didn't say it, but I said, well, if you feel that way, um, we can certainly pray in that, in that direction. And so we gathered his small group around him, his small group prayed for him. And this person said, as, as the people were praying, as my brothers were praying, I, I felt this electricity going through my body. And, it, and then he went to his doctor uh, the following week and said, "I know I've been healed by God, and I'm going off my medications." And the doctor said, "If you go off your medications, you'll be dead in in less than two months." And that was more than ten years ago. And uh, he he's been healed, and he's he's in the workforce. And and, and he heard from the Spirit, I believe, uh, God saying, "It is for freedom that I have set you free." And and God was saying, "And I want to apply this." to your mind and body, and and God did, and it was different from Paul's original intention, but that was God's word for that person. And so I feel that in preaching, though I might be castigated for this as an evangelical, that sometimes uh, God uh, in, in his mysterious providence will call us to speak about a text in a way that's different from what the prophet intended originally, and, and yet apply it uh, in a modern situation. Uh, and, and yet it, it's God's word and God's will for that for that person or that community.
0: I love it. And Ken, I can tell you that my exposure to some of your work, listening to these sermons and this conversation in particular, are going to have a, an impact on me. I'm going to be changed by it. And uh, I really appreciate your approach. And your generosity today. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, to get to know you through this. So thanks for having me. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hooper and Steve Thorngate.